Amos, the book of Amos, God's passionate plea for his people. Uh, can't go wrong with Andy Griffith, can you? Can't go wrong with that. <clears throat> if you have your uh, Bible, open up to Amos chapter 5 is where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse 17 and uh, work our way through verses uh, uh, half of fifteen, half of chapter 5 and on into chapter 6. Uh, if you've been with us, then you know that we are making our way into the second major section in the book of Amos. Uh, we began with the roar of judgment as God uh, talked about judgment on a host of nations, including the nation of Israel, to which the book was written. And then for the last several weeks, if we take a look at our chart here, for the last several weeks, we've been working through the reasons for judgment. And Amos has really focused his aim on five particular reasons for the coming judgment of God upon his people. We talked about their materialism. Uh, We talked about their refusal to repent. Uh, Last week, we talked about legal injustice. Uh, This morning, we're going to see reasons number four and reasons number five. And the first reason is what I will call hypocrisy, uh, particularly religious hypocrisy. And while uh, Barney was indeed faking it, Uh, as it relates to the subject of history, today Amos is going to say to the nation of Israel that they too were faking it, but not in the subject of history. They were going to be faking it in the subject of their religion, in the subject of their own religiosity, their religious practice. And Amos is going to give us reason number four and reason number five for the coming judgment on Israel. So let's jump right into reason number four. I hope you have your Bibles open. Chapter five, uh, the book of Amos. We're going to start in uh, verse 18 and work our way through as Amos talks about the religious hypocrisy that was going on in the nation of Israel. But before we do that, let's pray one more time, and then we'll jump into our text. So if you would pray with me. Father, it's a privilege for us to be here, for us to gather together to to sit and to sing songs of worship to you. We pray that those songs of worship uh, would be the overflow of our lives, that that which we offer to you minute by minute, day by day, uh, the living sacrifices that we want to present to you, that when we come into this place and offer you songs, that you would hear those songs and that you would be well well uh, pleased with them, that you would receive them because they match our lives as we come to give our offerings and our tithes, we pray that you would receive those because we give them joyfully out of hearts of obedience. And as we come and and participate in the service of the worship of this church, we pray that you would receive it because we are living lives of integrity and not religious hypocrisy. And so we pray that you would speak to us today through your spirit, through the prophet Amos. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our God, our Savior, our King, and our Lord, and all of God's people together said, Amen. Amen. So the fourth, region, uh, the fourth reason that Amos really focuses in on is religious hypocrisy. So before he, be- he gets to their hypocrisy, starting in verses 18 and running through verse 20, before he really uh, gets into their hypocrisy, he attacks the nation's false sense of security. And of course, that's related uh, to a hypocrisy. It's related to pride. But he's going to hone in and say, listen, you have a false sense of security as it pertains to your relationship to me. So let's begin in verse uh, 18, chapter 5. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord Be darkness and not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness. 
So before he gets into their hypocrisy, he talks about the nation's false sense of security. He says, listen, you're anticipating the day of the Lord. Now, when he uses this phrase, the day of the Lord, his hearers would know what he's talking about. The day of the Lord for the people of God in their minds was a day of judgment. But it wasn't a day of judgment on them. It was a day of judgment on their enemies. It would be a day that God would come in and wipe out their enemies and bring justice to the land. And Amos says, listen, you, you who long for the day of the Lord, who long for God's justice to happen among the nations, and yet you don't want justice to happen in your nation. You think it's going to be a day of light, but it's going to be a day of darkness. You think that it's going to bring judgment on your enemies, but first it's going to be a day of judgment on you. And did you notice the, the image? It's, it's meant to be funny. It's meant to be kind of ironic, right? What, what, is, there, uh, what is this image that he brings of this uh, coming judgment? It's it's going to pass. It's a sure thing, right? He says their, their sense of security is like a man who is uh, in, in the wild and he comes upon a lion. And when you come upon a lion, what do you do? You run. And so this man, he runs from the lion and he runs his heart out and he somehow escapes the lion and he stops and he's panting and he's, he's catching his breath. And what's in the thicket behind him? A bear. And then he sees the bear, and the bear begins to chase him. And he runs and runs from the bear, and he finally gets to his house. And he opens the door of his house, and he opens, and he shuts the door, and he bolts it. And, oh, he's safe. He's finally safe from this enemy of his. And he's so exhausted that he he leans his hand upon the wall. And then what's at his feet? A snake is at his feet. The prophet Amos says, you think that you can get away from the coming judgment of God, but you can't. And the reason why he shares that is he tells them why that's going to be in verses 21 through 24. He jumps right into what is a, a scathing assessment of the spiritual life of the people. What was the spiritual life of the nation? What was it like to, to be one of God's people in the day of Amos? What, were, what was their spiritual condition? Well, he shows us in verses 21 through 24. Let's read that together. Notice these words. I hate, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. So the prophet Amos has harsh and difficult words for the people of God, for the nation of Israel, because of their religious hypocrisy. He says, oh, you, you gather to worship me. You come to the festivals. You come to offer sacrifices. And he says, but those sacrifices, they literally, they smell. That's the word in Hebrew. When you come to offer your worship, instead of being a a pleasing aroma to my nostrils, it smells. It smells horrible to me, right? And having shut his nostrils to their worship, he says, I'm going to stop my ears to the songs that you sing to me. 
He says, listen, you're going through the motions. You come to the festivals. You come and you offer your sacrifices to me and you sing songs of praise to me and then you go home and you live lives of unrighteousness and you live lives as it relates to other people of injustice. And so your worship doesn't match your life, right? Your life is disjointed with your worship. It's just full of nothing. Pastor Warren Wearsby says it this way. He said, it it would be like this. It's as though a pastor today were saying to his congregation, sure, go ahead and attend church. But by attending, you're only sinning more. Your heart isn't serious about knowing God or doing his will, since it's all just play acting. And so there was hypocrisy. They were going through the motions, but their heart was not there. Instead, what did God want? Instead of attending a worship gathering, instead of offering sacrifices and singing songs, what did God really want from them? Well, we see it at the tail end of verse 24, but let justice roll like a river and let righteousness like a never failing stream. He says, listen, I want you to treat each other rightly. I want there to be justice in the land. I want you to pursue a life of obedience and righteousness. And from that righteousness, then offer me praises and offer me sacrifices and come to worship gatherings. But when you just come and you go through the motions, it's putrid to me. I will shut my ears up to it. He says he wants their righteousness and their justice to be like an overflowing river, like a strong river. Now, many of you know a few months ago, my wife and I had the great privilege of going up to Niagara Falls. So we left the kids with grandma and we drove the 10 or 11 hours, whatever it was, up to Canada and we spent a couple days at Niagara Falls. I don't know if you've been there or not. Uh, I would suggest going. It's pretty awesome, pretty amazing. It's, it's really amazing. One of the things that I enjoyed that I didn't realize we were going to be able to see was, of course, there's the, there's the falls, which is spectacular. But uh, what happens is that the falls kind of go down and then it feeds into a river. It's called the Niagara River. And one of the things that you can do is you can take a uh, kind of walk alongside the Niagara River. And they had interesting tidbits, facts about the river as you're walking along and how spectacular it it, it really is. Um, It it shared with us that uh, there's kind of a rating system as far as the danger of the river for like riding on it, swimming, rafting it. And it goes uh, zero to six with zero being like you sit there on your raft and you're not moving, right? To six being you're going to die. And literally, uh, the level six is, if you get in the river, uh, imminent death and injury uh, will occur, right? It just don't do it. You're going to die. And uh, one of the things that I found interesting was it said was pretty much year-round uh, that the Niagara River at that spot was a level six all the time. And so I want to show you a quick video uh, because what happens is you have all this water coming and then it narrows into a river. And so imagine the force of all of that water just being channeled into a a kind of a a pretty small river basin. And what you get is overflowing rivers. What you get is a powerful, strong river with waves, they said, that crested at about 12 feet above the riverbanks. It was spectacular. So I want to show you just a little bit of this image that Amos uses.
So if you like an adventure, you like white water, then go there, but at your, at your, at your risk, right? It was the spectacular, powerful, overflowing river. That, and Amos says, listen, I want your righteousness to be like that. I want it to be powerful. I want it to be strong. I want it to be overflowing. And so he talks about the religious hypocrisy of the people of Israel. And this is the lesson for us. It's a, it's a simple lesson, and it's simply this. God hates religious hypocrisy. God hates religious hypocrisy. This is a strong word to those of us who, and I think we're guilty of this from time to time, all of us, God hates those of us who are engaged in Christian religious activities with the wrong motives. The people of God in in those days had wrong motives in their worship. There was no pursuit of obedience. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, why are we engaged in religious activity? Why why is it that we come to church? Why why do we do that? What's, What's our motive? Why are you here today? I think we all can do it out of wrong motives from time to time? Is it simply because we want to have a perception in our community of being a moral person? We're good people. We're moral. We go to church. Or maybe it's for social acceptance. I go to church, therefore I'm socially accepted in the community. Maybe we come just for social or friendship reasons. We're lonely and we want to make connections. And so we simply go to to find a friend. Maybe it's business connections. You run a business, you work for a business, and you just want to get in good with the people of the community. How about this one? I hear this a lot. Well, we come to church because it's important that our kids have a good moral education. We, we want them to hear the scripture, and I, I want them to as well. And yet, that's not a good reason to come to church. Because of family pressure, my wife expects me to come, my kids, my mom and dad make me, my in-laws, family pressure. So why is it that you come to church? Why is it that you do religious things? It's as if God is saying, listen, I'm going to reject your worship services. I'm going to reject your Bible study, your Sunday school, your small group. I'm going to reject the offerings and the tithes that you make, maybe your talent and your time, your worship songs. I don't want to hear them anymore. They're grating to my mind because you're just going through the motions. And I wonder, I wonder, church, if this is us from time to time, God says, he uses strong language. Listen, I, I hate that. I won't accept it. I want justice, and I want righteousness to flow from your life. Then I will accept your tithes and your offerings and your coming to church and everything that you do. So he speaks a strong word to their religious hypocrisy, and that's the fourth reason for judgment. And this section ends in, into chapter 6. As we move into chapter 6, the section ends, and he gives yet another reason, a final, a fifth reason for the coming judgment on the nation. And it's one, I think, that's very pertinent to us, just like religious hypocrisy, just like the nation of Israel of old. We can get wrapped up in hypocrisy, and yet we can also be wrapped up very much so in this fifth and final sin that Amos mentions in chapter 6. And that's the sin of pride. It's the sin of pride. Abraham Lincoln uh, penned these words that I'd like to share with you. He penned these, these words on the day that he was proclaiming a national day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer in the year of 1863. Listen to the words of this humble leader. He says this so many years ago, and yet it rings true even today. He says, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. 
we have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, in wealth, and in power, as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all of these blessings were produced, and here's the point, were produced by some superior wisdom or virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and persevering grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. Wow. Are those not words of a, of a humble leader? And yet as we move into Amos chapter 6, we're going to see Amos describe not humble leaders, but very proud, very arrogant, very selfish leaders of the nation of Israel as he describes the pride that began at the top and I would guess trickled down through the nation. He invites them, starting in verse 1, And going through verse 3, he invites them to look at other cities. Other cities that were once proud. Other cities that were once strong and fruitful. And he says, proud leaders of Israel, come and look at these cities. They were once proud, and yet they have been humbled. They have been defeated. And he asks the question, are you any better than them? Are you any better than them? Are you inherently better than they are? And of course, the answer is no. Verses 1 through 3 in chapter 6. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. You notable men, notice that, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Verse 2. Go to Kalni and look at it. Go from there to great Hamath, And from there, go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You have put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. So he says to the humble leaders, listen, you think that you're invincible. You think that you Uh, the land of Israel, are better than these nations and these cities, and and yet look at how they have been humbled. Are you inherently any better than they? Of course, they thought that they were better than they, and they were not. So what he does is he moves on. He decries the rich, the, the leaders, the prosperous people in Israel, and he describes their lives of luxury. He describes how good they had it. And he decries at how the rich in Israel cared about their prosperity and he cared, they care more about their luxury than the nation's spiritual bankruptcy. He says, listen, you love your lotions and you love your fine things and you love to be pampered and yet you don't care that the people are perishing spiritually. They're spiritually bankrupt and all you care about is the nice things you have. Verses 4 through 7. You lie on beds adorned with ivory 
and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and you use the finest of lotions, but you, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, verse 7, therefore you will be among the first to go into exile and your feasting and your lounging will end. Church, this is a strong word for us today. I wonder if he could be speaking to Christians in America. I wonder if he could be speaking to me. And I wonder if he could be speaking to you. Because we live in the lap of luxury here in America. Compared to other nations, we live in the lap of luxury. And I wonder, I just wonder if the truth were told, if we care more about our prosperity and our luxury than the fact that the nation that we live in is spiritually bankrupt. I wonder if we're so consumed with getting more and having a better, more full, more rich life that we don't care that people are lost and we don't care that the nation is going to hell in a handbasket, that we don't care about the morality or lack thereof of the nation. I wonder... I wonder. He goes on to say that he detests the pride of the nation. This is the unifying theme in this chapter. They're proud. They're proud people. And he says, I detest your pride. And because of that, there's going to be widespread death and destruction. Verses 8 through 11. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob. And I detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. And then he gives a vivid picture of what that's going to look like. If 10 people are left in one house, they too will die. And if the relative who comes to carry the bodies out of the house to burn them asks anyone who might be hiding, is anyone else down there with you? And he says no, then he will go on to say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. Verse 11. For the Lord has given the command, and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small houses into bits. This is the image, the destruction that God's going to bring. They don't even want to mention the name of the Lord because they think that if they just mention his name, that more destruction is going to come upon them. God clearly says in this passage and in other passages that he hates pride, that he abhors it, that he's opposed to the proud. And to close, he presents two images. He presents two images that are unimaginable. They're, they're nonsensical. They, they're just silly almost to drive home the point of the unimaginable perversion of justice that was going on in the land. And again, highlights how the proud of the nation, how the pride of the nation have, have just infected them, and they think that all of their military victories are simply because of themselves. Verses 12 through 14. Do horses run on the, on the rocky crags? Does, the one, does one plow the sea with oxen? And the, and the simple answer is no. If you have a, a craggy, rocky land, you're not going to plow with it, right? The horses aren't going to run on it, and you don't plow the sea with oxen. That doesn't make any sense. Notice, but you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You who rejoice at the conquest of Lodabar and say, 
Did we not take Carnaim by our own strength? Notice that. By whose strength did they think that they defeated this city? By their own strength. Verse 14, For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way from uh, Libo Hamath to the valley of the Arabah. And we know that that was the nation of Assyria in 722 BC who exiled a vast number of those living in Israel. So here's the lesson for us. Just as we learned in chapter 5 that God hates religious hypocrisy, God also hates pride. He hates pride. He abhors it. As I've looked through this description of the pride of the nation and the people of Israel, I kind of noticed that there were four sources of pride. There were four things that I think made them proud. And I want to share these with you because I think that we too, as we sit here in America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, and we're so prosperous, I wonder if these four areas, these four sources of pride, can also be sources of pride for us. So number one, jot this down if you're taking notes. In verse one, I see that they, were, they had pride in their position. They had pride in their positions. Notice in verse one, verse one describes those who were wealthy. They were wealthy bureaucrats. They were leaders of their people. They were proud of their prominent positions, right? Notice what it says in verse one. It says that the people of Israel would come to them. That is, these were people who could get things done. If you had a problem, if you needed leadership, then you would come to these people, right? They were the wise. They were the knowledgeable. They were those who led the nation of Israel. And everyone would come to them. And folks, I think we too can get big heads because of our positions in life. Maybe we own a prominent business in the area and our head can be a little bit bigger because we think that we're better. We have a, a nice position here in the in the community. Maybe we have a position of government or leadership in the town in, in some way, shape, or form, and people come to us, and we can become elevated in our own minds. Maybe we have a position of authority at work. Maybe we have people under us, and we think, man, we're, we're better. We're something. We really are someone because we have a position in life. And so, friends, I want to ask you, we have to examine ourselves and say, because of whatever position we may be in in life, have we allowed ourselves to think that we're, we're just, we're better, that we've attained that because of just our own strength and skill and wisdom? See, the first area of pride was pride in their positions. And we move on into verses 2 and 3. And not only were they proud in their positions, but they had what I would call pride of place. That is, they thought that their land and that their race and that their nation was inherently better as God's chosen people, God's chosen race, on God's chosen land, that they were somehow a cut above the nations around them. I love what the British pastor of about 100 years ago, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist British pastor, he said this. He said, Be not proud of race, face, place, or grace. Be not proud of race. The nation of Israel They were proud of their race. Be not proud of face. Be not proud of place. They were proud because they were from the chosen land. And be not proud of grace. God had given them grace upon grace. He had given them his word. He had made a covenant with them. And they thought that that elevated them. There was a pride in that nation. And folks, I wonder, I just wonder, 
If we here in Cisna, if you live in Cisna, if you think that because of all the wonderful things that we have going on in this town, and there are wonderful things and wonderful advantages of living here, but I, I wonder if we are proud of this place. I wonder if we think ourselves just a cut above if we think ourselves that we are somehow inherently better because we live in the confines or the immediate surroundings of this wonderful little town that we have. I was talking with a pastor to pastors. That's what he does. He mentors pastors in the Champaign-Urbana area and surrounding areas, and I was meeting with him with another local pastor from our town, and he asked us what our town was like, and we mentioned all the wonderful things that we enjoy about living here and being here and ministering here. And he said, well, what are, what are some of the hang-ups? And he asked us about drugs and alcohol, and he said, yeah, okay, I, we think that's there. And he said, well, well, what is it then? And you know what we said? We both, to a T, said pride. Pride. In my humble opinion, pride is the foremost of sins in our community. I want to share a quick story that I think brings this home. And it happened years ago, but there was a family, and this is anonymous, who uh, attended here for a, a while, and they were not from the immediate Cisna Park area. And they, they stayed for a while. I got an email from her saying that they had decided to move on and to go to another church. And the reason why was this. Uh, one morning <coughs> before church, kids were playing, and their kids were playing with other kids, and they went down to get their kids, to bring them up to church. And their kids were playing by themselves. And they asked their kids, why aren't you playing with the other kids? And the long and short of it is that they said, well, they said we couldn't play with them. And, I, and she said, well, why is that? And they said, well, because they are from blankety blank. They're from that town. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And folks, let me ask you this. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? Does it come from a deeply rooted pride? Have we, like the people of Israel, (laughs) elevated the pride of our place just a bit too much? Third, they had pride in their possessions. Did you get the description of the luxury that they lived in? The extravagance of their lifestyle? Folks, I think we can be guilty of this. We can think that uh, our prized possessions... The home that we live in that's maybe a little bit nicer than than others. The cars that we drive that may be a little bit newer than some others. The brand name clothes that we wear that are $25 compared to the $10 shirt that the other person may be wearing. The iPhone 6 that you might have compared to my iPhone iPhone 4 that's broken. (laughs) Um, You may think, wow, I'm, I'm really there. The nice furniture, the tools, the toys that we may have. And I think it's so easy. It's just so easy for us, even without thinking, to look at what we're wearing, to look at what someone else is wearing and say, man, I must just be a little bit better than that person because I'm wearing Abercrombie and they're wearing Walmart. I just must be a little bit cut above. And that was the sin of the nation of Israel, and it can be ours as well. The fourth source of pride, pride of performance. Boy, We all struggle with this, right? Did you notice in verses 12 through 14, I pointed it out. Israel thought that its military success was totally their own strength. It was totally because they were good soldiers and they had lots of soldiers. They took pride in their accomplishment of defeating 
the cities and the nations around them. This was the high mark other than the reign of Solomon for the nation of Israel. This was the best, right? They were militarily at their best, Solomon's era aside. And they took pride in their accomplishments, in their performances. And not that we can't say, you did a great job, Johnny. I'm proud of you. No, they said, you see that? See what I just did? See see what I just did in school? See what I just did in the business world? See what I just did at my job? See See what we just did? It's because, it's because of us. It's solely because of us. It's because we worked hard. It's because we worked harder than anyone else. It's because we studied hard. It's all because of us. And they excluded any role of God's grace to them, enabling them, empowering them, giving, him, giving, giving them his favor. Friends, God hates hypocrisy and God hates pride. And I don't know about you, but I can often be full of both. And so what do we need to do? I'm going to close with this. How do we respond to this? How is the nation of Israel to respond to this? I think we find the answer in James chapter 4, verse 6. It reminds us that we open up the floodgates of God's grace when we humble ourselves before him and we damn them up when we are proud. James 4, 6 says, but, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so what God wants is righteousness, justice, and humility. May God give us grace to fight the hypocrisy of religion in our own lives and the pride that's so prevalent in our hearts. And may he look upon us and may he say that we are humble people. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need your help. All of us fake it sometimes. All of us go through the motions. All of us, in one way, shape, or form, the songs that we sing on Sunday don't match the actions and our words that we perform on Monday. Father, we all are hypocrites. We all need your grace. We all are full of pride in whatever it may be, whether it's because of our position or where we live. Maybe it's because of what we have or what we've done. We all need to be humbled. God, we all need your grace, and we want it so desperately. We want the floodgates of your grace to be opened to us, and we don't want you to damn them up. How desperately we need it, and how good it is to know that you give more grace, that when we humble ourselves and come to you, you change us. You give us your strength so that our worship, our songs, our offerings, our lives— What we do here on Sunday would match what we do on Monday so that the pride that so easily wells up in our heart would be replaced with true dependence upon you and true humility, recognizing that any good thing that we do, any good fruit, it's because we're abiding in the vine who's Christ. We desperately need that. And so we pray, as our president of old, Abraham Lincoln, has prayed that we would not forget you that we would not forget your gracious hand that has preserved us in peace and has enriched us so much. May we not be intoxicated with unbroken success. May we not be too self-sufficient to feel the need of your redeeming grace to us through faith in Jesus Christ. May we not be too proud to pray to you and to humble ourselves before you. We ask this in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said together. Amen. Amen. See you next week.